0: Well, thank you, Pastor, for those uh, kind words. I guess they were kind. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, on it, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, two of you said Happy New Year. Now let's try that again. Happy New Year, everybody. New Year. Thank you. Maggie and I wish you both a Happy New Year. Maggie is down here. Stand up, Maggie, so they can see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she was standing up. <laughs> Uh, no, it's good, uh, good to be here this morning. I thank uh, uh, Chuck for the opportunity, and also thank uh, especially the good Lord for the opportunity. Now, this is, uh, some of you made some resolutions last night. I understand that. Some of you didn't. Some of you don't care about it. But I just want us to uh, start the new year off right here this morning, and I want you to be honest with me. Will you be honest with me at least for three minutes? Will you? This is yes, this is no. Okay, here we go. How many of you... I'm going to ask you three questions, okay? How many of you went to bed and did not see the ball drop in New York City? Raise your hands. Okay. We did too because I had to speak this morning. And so it's one of the few times that we didn't stay up. All right. That's fine. Thank you for being honest. How many of you stayed up and saw the ball drop last night? Good. All right. Now, this is a tough one here. And we all, the other two groups have been honest. This is the third one. I want you to be honest this morning. How many of you are just getting in now this morning, you drove by the church and saw some cars here and decided to pull in? Yeah. Would you raise your hand? Binky? <laughs> okay. All right. So nobody, all right. So everybody's here because you're here for this reason, all right? You just just didn't drive by and see it. Well, Good. It's good to be here, and this is the start of a new year. And so, God just laid it upon my heart. I, I knew a, a month or so ago, six weeks, that I'd be speaking this morning. And uh, God just laid it in my heart to talk to you about a special thing, and that's encouragement here this morning. You know, so, so many times as, uh, as I travel and, and look around and, and visit other churches, and, and I mean small churches to large churches to, to mega churches and everything that uh, you see so much discouragement in churches today. I mean, it really is. It's, it, I've never seen it, uh, like, she, like Chuck said, 1973, Maggie and I both were saved, baptized together, uh, saved within a few weeks of each other, baptized together. And I just have never seen the discouragement in church. I've seen it before, but never like it is today. It's discouragement. You know, our whole country is even discouraged. We just came through one of the most powerful elections in the history, as of today, of the United States. Who knows what the future holds? But as of this, uh, this country came through and we saw, we saw the dark horse candidate come from behind and just beat the other one to a pulp. But what it is, and I'm not trying to turn this into a political thing this morning, but still, we got to be encouraged. We got to be happy. We have a change of leadership uh, right now. And so there's so many good things to look forward to. But the country is not happy right now. It's still divided. There's a big job ahead. Because the have-nots, things have changed in our society where ordinarily we would accept it. Okay, our candidate didn't get in. We just go on and we move on. But they don't want to move on. And so it's, things are really discouraged in that. We're discouraged about a lot of things that are even changing. Right now, uh, I didn't see the news this morning, but Maggie saw it for a few minutes and said in Turkey last night that uh, there was a, a killing in one of the bars, I guess, or the nightclubs, 20, 27, 29 people. Did anybody else see that? Were uh, were massacred and by terrorists. And so, you know, that's discouraging this morning, start of a new year. Right now, I don't think anything happened much to, to uh, our our, uh, our country, in our own country, and uh, that uh, you know everything seemed to be pretty good, especially in New York City, and that. and so um, America is discouraged. I have a fa- friend who's a who's a real famous evangelist. If I if I mentioned his name, maybe half of you would hear him. He uh, is one of the greatest uh, evangelists ever to come out of our convention, in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, and uh, but he's he's a good friend. Uh, and, you know, been everywhere. And as I got to know him through another mutual friend over the years, we became friends. And, uh, I mean, this man is, he does conferences all over the world where thousands will come to his conferences and everything. And then uh, I asked him one day, I just said, listen. I said, as you travel and as you see, especially in the United States, but I said, really, all your travels and everything... What do, you, what, do you see, what do you see as the greatest need of people today? And he said the greatest need is this, encouragement, especially in the church. This was a number of years ago that I asked him. He said especially in the church and everything because he said people are so discouraged, not only in our own country, in the world, but he said they're so discouraged in their own church. And that's sad That's sad in your own church to to be discouraged and everything. And so today, what God has laid upon my heart and everything is uh, in the book of Exodus, and uh, I don't know if it'll be up on the screen or not, but Exodus 15, if you want to turn, if you have your electronics, turn to that. And uh, if you have a Bible, turn to that. If you want to turn to Exodus 15... And this, and this, let me give you a little bit of a history here, because there's several things that take place in Exodus 15, and it's one of those chapters that you just tend to skip over a little bit. Uh, might not want to study it a whole lot, because you say, "Well, there's, there's not not maybe much in Exodus 15," but there is uh, for us that really want to look and try to find something. I'm a seeker, anyhow. Uh, you know, I try to pull out things and see really what is God saying to me today, and, and I do that when I teach also. In a formal class, I try to pull out things and everything and apply it. A lot of people you've heard this say, "Well, the Old Testament doesn't apply to me." Oh, you want to bet? It wouldn't have been left there for me and you if it wasn't to apply to us today." And there's things in Exodus 15 that do apply to the Israelites as well as to me today in this. Now here, here's what's happened. I'm going to try to bring you up to speed real quick on this, so we don't have to spend a lot of time on a background the uh, The, they, the uh, Israelites were freed from egypt okay they've been in a march across the desert and everything they have uh, c- came to the Red sea and and quite frankly complained about the Red Sea because uh, how are we going to get across and everything like that? There was no bridge naturally, and so this so anyhow, Moses reaches out of the sand over to sea, he opens the sea and so forth and everything and so the Egyptians uh, haul after them and everything and then Moses closed up to sea. God closed up to sea through Moses and everything. But here's what happened to them. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. Now that's a wipeout. The whole Egyptian army basically is gone. It's wiped out. So now they, they start back on their trek as they're starting to move and everything. And in the first... Uh, 18 verses of Exodus uh, 15 is a constant theme that's in this. Now, you, this is one of those things that you have to be, you have to pull out spiritually because it's not printed there for you. But the constant theme is this: as they're pulling out, they're rejoicing in everything, and they're singing. And uh, in a few minutes, we'll find out where they're dancing also. And so, they're, they're, But the, here's the constant theme throughout it: is this in this passage is, it and it's a simple point: is this. And numerous times in the 18 verses in Exodus 15, we find this recurring theme that's hidden in there. And that's this, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. It's a constant theme in there that they're saying. They're giving him praise and they're giving him the honor and everything of uh, glory that he deserves and everything. But the hidden truth in it is the battle is the Lord's. And so as I speak this morning to you and everything, I want you to remember that theme throughout it, that the battle is the Lord's. Because you see, we're going to come up to some problems in just a few minutes, and there's problems in our life also. And I'll tell you what, and you're being honest with me this morning, and I'm being honest with you, the battle is always the Lord's. When we have problems in our life, when it comes up to us and it smacks us right in the face, the battle is the Lord's. And so it's not my problem. it's his problem. But you know, we don't want to look at it that way. We don't want to give up our problem. I'll speak about that some more in just a little bit. There's also some things uh, uh, that, that we see that we don't want to turn loose of. We find it a lot in churches today, because whether it's a preacher, a music director, uh, a missions uh, pastor, uh, which I am, an ad or associate pastor, but there's always something. That instead of us getting down on our knees in churches today, now we're talking about the church in general, all religions, we're not talking about Baptists, we're not talking about this church, we're talking about all churches in general and everything, is that we're always you know instead of the letting the Lord fight the battles for us, even as staff and so forth, we want to try to fight the battles ourselves, whatever they may be, when they come and they hit us and everything. And so consequently, What happens to a lot of times to a lot of preachers, especially because they're the head of the staff and everything, and the head of the the church here physically, is that they're trying to find some kind of program, some kind of spark to get things really going, especially when it's down in the dumps and everything. And so they try to do their best to do everything they can. I, I stand up here and I'm not going to boast and, and tell. And I don't say this boastfully to you. I'm every kind of train there is, man. I've been in the church since 1973. I've seen every kind of program there is. Maggie and I both. We're faith trained. I remember that when we moved into this church, how faith was the answer to making your church grow. Okay? Came out of Bobby Welch's church first when he used to be, before he retired, out of First Baptist Daytona. It was a good program. I don't knock it or anything. But at faith, I came to this conclusion. It was a good program if you went to visit somebody in their house under ideal conditions. And when you go to visit somebody, you never have ideal conditions because you got little kids running around. You got the TV blaring. You got everybody yammering at you and everything. And that is not ideal conditions. And so... Basically, faith—it's still around. You can still buy it in a bookstore, and uh, uh, you know—it's—it's—it it's, didn't last. It didn't last. I'm uh, uh, this started in the '80s, I guess it was, and everything. I'm the I'm people search trained. I'm people search trained. Okay. That means that the Georgia Baptist Convention came down with a program, and they said that this would make your church grow. You didn't have to go visit people. Just go knock on a door and enroll them in Sunday school. That's what we used to do. So I'm people trained. I had to go through training for that. Well, people searches now. Now if you go to knock on somebody's door, you're going to get a shotgun in your face in America because the society has changed. People will search will not work anymore. Okay, So Name me one program that lasts. They're not around anymore. You can go to the bookstore and buy them. The programs are still there on a the shelf. I just was in a, a Lifeway in Alabama not, uh, over the holidays, and you can still buy faith. You can still buy people. So it's there in one little corner way off to the side. Programs come and go, folks. What staff and what a church needs to do in order to make your church grow is we have to get down on our knees we have to get down on our knees. The greatest respect I have for the pastors and that I know that their churches are blossoming and growing by leaps and bounds, and they can't explain it. They, I mean, they can get up there in a the Sunday morning and tell you, I don't know why. I don't know why we're filling in the auditorium. It's usually these pastors that have worn themselves out on a prayer altar that they have in their holy of holies or their hideaway I know one pastor in Tennessee right now, a very good friend of mine up in Knoxville that had a prayer altar years ago that was that, that thick, uh, and he kneels down before it, and it was this wide, and now over the years, it's like this from his knees over the years. And he wears a prayer shawl always. I know because I've talked to his secretary when he has literally told her at times that he would start praying for me when I've called, uh, called his office and said, will you start praying for me because I have problems right now in that. And so I know of a lot of other preachers that have tried to change themselves, some TV evangelists, uh, like the TV evangelists, and their churches haven't grown. It's not the method that gets it done. That won't work. It's God using the man that will commit himself and get on his knees and say, God, take me and break me and use me. That's the churches that are growing right now. The churches that have grown in our recession are the churches that have put missions first and have grown in all that. Some of us are here today, and we need to change direction. Some of us are trying to overcome faults. We need to change direction in our families, in our finances, in our marriages, in our uh, physical being as well as our spiritual being. And so we need to change. Now we pick it up, and that's the first 18 verses, and, say, and see this. Now in verses 20, it says, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the tremble in her hand, and all the women went out after her with trembles and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea and everything. And so they took this tremble, uh, the trembles, and they danced, and they were rejoicing. Man, that's awesome to see that rejoicing. I don't like to see that. That's fantastic when you see somebody like that that has the Lord and they're rejoicing and all that. The key to rejoicing, though, for you and I is to be saved. That's the key to rejoicing. You can buy all the books you want. You can buy all the movies you want, the self-help studies and everything, but you're still going to have problems. The key to rejoicing is to being saved. And the key to rejoicing is rejoicing. Is learning how to rejoice. That's one of the hardest things for the Christian to do. And I mean that with you. I mean that. Seriously. It's hard to rejoice when you're pounded by the world. But you know, it tells us this. We are not made joyful by our circumstances, but what is in us. What is in us? Does the lady at the cash register at the grocery store see Jesus in you or see the world in you? How about where you pick your cleaning up maybe? Do they see Jesus in you or do they see the world because they made a mistake on your cleaning? What do they see coming out of you? They see Jesus or do they see the world? Some waiter messes up on you and spills something on you or a waitress. What do they see coming out of you? They see Jesus, or do they see the world coming out of you? It's just a shirt, folks. It's just a sport coat, folks. It can be replaced. Paul said this, I have decided to be content in whatever state I'm in. It's because he has something more powerful in him that was in him that was on the outside of him. This is what they were happy about. Remember, rejoicing belongs to the redeemed. They are rejoicing now because they have been redeemed. They've been let go out of bondage. And now they're trekking through the desert. They've seen miracle after miracle already in everything. But now you would think that everything would be a bed of roses for these people, that everything is going to be just fine. There's no more difficulties going to face them. They know the Egyptians are dead. They're not coming back, and they just think that everything will be a bed of roses. We do a dishonor to somebody that gets saved. Let's say they get saved this morning, and a pastor's standing here, and they walk the aisle, and they say, I got saved, and I want to be baptized. We do them a disservice because we as a church don't tell them the truth. The truth is this. It's going to get worse Not that you're a Christian, it's going to get worse. Satan will come after you greater than he's ever had before. It's going to get worse. But we're going to be here to help you in everything, and we're going to do everything in our power to help you ward off the evil one. We don't tell them that. We just say, oh, yeah, baptism, we'll baptize and everything, and then all of a sudden we wonder why we don't see him six weeks later. You know why? Because they got discouraged when a problem came in. Israelites now are going to face more difficulties. <clears throat> There'll be thorns along the path. There wasn't even a sigh from the congregation. Like, oh, it's over. They have journeyed now three days into the wilderness. On a fourth, they've been without water. And on a fourth day, they come to a place. This is the key passages. So Moses now, in verse, I'm in verse 22. He brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Sur, and they went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. Any of you been out without water, traveling, or without some kind of liquid? Have you? One year in Africa, we ran out of water on the houseboat. We had to, we had to filter water. You want to taste something horrible? Drink filtered water. I'll tell you, maybe we should have it on a social time just to show everybody what filtered water tastes like. It's awful. It's awful. I said it would never happen again, and it hasn't happened since. We overkill on water. I'll tell you what, when you go through it. So here they are now. Now, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. They came to water now. And now they called it, therefore the name of it was called Marah, which in the Hebrew is Bitter. And the people complained against Moses, saying, what shall we drink here? So they asked him, what are we going to do? And Moses turned to God then and said, what are we going to do? And God told him to do something. So he cried out to the Lord, did Moses, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet, and then he made a statue and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. Now, this is me, and I'm entitled to my opinion because I'm preaching, okay? But I will tell you this. This is my opinion. Don't leave here saying that it's John said it's in the Scriptures. It's not in the Scriptures. I know this much. God was, uh, Moses was God's instrument. They came to the place. They saw water. Then some of them, I'm sure, went down there, and they tasted it, and it was bitter as can be. And so he told Moses what to do. He says, you'd go and you chop that tree over there and you throw that down. In my sensibility and knowing how God works, I just don't believe it was some little seedling or some little branch that was ready to die almost. And he told him, go ahead and throw that in there. I believe with all my heart that knowing that the way God works, and I don't tell you I have an inside track on his mind, I don't, I'm not any special. I'm no more special than you are. When he said it was a tree, brother, it was a tree. Remember, he had to show all these people by not by him throwing some twig in a water or some half dead seedling and everything. The people had to see a tree literally being thrown in the water because they were so massive as a group that the word could spread to those that it couldn't even see. And he took and he chopped that tree down and he threw that tree. And Moses is an old man, by the way, too, by today's standards. But God gave him the strength to throw that tree in the water because God's trying to make a point here. Cut that tree down and throw it in the water, and the water will turn sweet, and the water's turn sweet. I think the reason a tree was required is because later on in the future, long before you and I were, could even think about even being born, is that this tree was also a symbol because it would be the cross later on for man's salvation. Because the cross was made from a tree. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us, says that he died in a tree for our sins. But here's the thing that's, that's important before we even go on to two more verses here. What's the first thing they did? What is the very first thing that they did when they came to the waters and they were bitter? They complained. They complained. What's the first thing you do in your life when a problem comes up as a born-again believer? What's the first thing you do? Now, you don't tell me that you smile and that you just thank, you. You thank God for this problem and everything. We want to know, why is he doing this to me? Why is God punishing me for this? When God is not punishing you, God is trying to educate you when you and I hit the marriage of life and it's bitter. But, you know, we don't want to listen because I call it the Hoover effect. You know what I mean with a Hoover? We all understand what a Hoover vacuum is. What does it do? It sucks up, doesn't it? And so what we want to do is we want all the pity we can get. Man, you call your preacher. You just call anybody you can and just, man, just just suck in that problem. Give me all the pity you can because that will make me feel better. Pat me on the back and everything. Because we don't want to do the one thing God tells us to do, and to get on down on our knees at the altar. And it doesn't have to be in this church now on your altar. If it's by your bed, if it's in your car, stop your car, get on the side of the road. I know people literally do, and they get on their knees when a problem hits in that. The experiences of Mira in our Christian lives today, they're normal. It's a normal thing for the Christian to experience mirrors in our life. They're there. Now, Bill Martin is here, who's a preacher, and Bill, age-wise, outshines me. And Bill will tell you, are you done with the mirrors in your life, or do they still come? Or do you have any more? You don't have any more problems, do you, you and your wife? No. Yeah. Listen. The gray hair, the age, has no bearing on the mirror problems. They still come. They come to us in different ways that God is trying to teach us and test us as he did the Israelites here. He's trying to test us and see, are we going to be faithful? Here's what I told you. Remember about the battle of the Lord. He wants us to turn the battles over to him. The battle is the Lord's. It's not yours. You say, well, I got this problem of finances and everything. I know you've got a problem with finances. We've got a problem every day with finances in our family anymore. I'll tell you what. But you turn them over to Lord Jesus Christ, and they don't, they, 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 they'll go away. But you've got to have that faithfulness. That's what he was trying to ask the Israelites to do. The whole time in the desert was, trust me, Obey me. And that's what he's asking to us. A lot of times the first thing we'll do when we have problems come and hit us is this is number one, we'll stop reading our Bible, and number two is we'll stop coming to church because we don't want everybody to know our problems. Because this problem is unique to me. How about marital problems? That's a mirror problem. Now we've been married this past August was fifty-one years. Fifty-one years. We were high school sweethearts, juniors in high school. Two weeks before the prom, we met a couple of young punks, okay? But 51 years we made it. And let me tell you, I will tell you this right now. Maggie and I do not have the perfect marriage. We haven't figured it out yet. We're still learning. Am I right? We argue. We have words every now and then. I can't remember the last time we argued, but I remember I was right. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you this much, we're still working on our marriage, folks. Those vows, though, as we get older, become more and more real to us in sickness and in health. They're there. So don't tell me, everybody here this morning, your marriage is just fine and, and you know, I don't, I'm going to turn you off until you get to another subject. No, no, don't turn me off. Everybody's marriage has ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs along the way in life. And especially if you have children, they get down, they go up, and everything. We have trouble with our children. We don't want anybody to know at church. Don't tell anybody, you know. You can hear both of them, a man and a wife on the way to church. Don't tell anybody about, you know, we're having troubles, and we don't want anybody to know. We put on that Christian smile when we walk through the door. How are you doing today? Just fine, just fine. When I'm going through the grocery line sometime, the cashiers, you know, as they're scanning stuff and everything, they'll say, how are you doing today? And I'll say, lousy. And it, another three or four or five items go by before they realize what I said. They said, lousy? I said, yeah, aren't you getting tired of everybody lying to you all day long? As a pastor, you know everybody's not doing well. They're not doing well at all. And so the mirrors come. It's a bitter. Bitterness comes to a Christian. But it's, it's puzzling. It's perplexing to us. But he's educating us, and he's preparing us for something special, something special that's coming out of this. There is something special coming out of that financial or that physical ailment you have or that financial or that marital or any one thing that God wants to use to draw you closer to him. That's what he wanted to do to the Israelites. All he wanted to do is this. They've been in the world. Egypt represents the world in the Bible. They've been in the world for 400-some years in bondage, and they begin to act like the Egyptians, worship like the Egyptians, intermarried with the Egyptians. And now he's got to get the world out of them and purge them, impurities out of them. So he's taking them through the desert on purpose. Why didn't he take them to the promised land the next day? They weren't ready to handle it. Why aren't you ready for all the promises that the Bible has to offer in this book? Because you're not ready. Maggie and I are still not ready for all the promises because we can't handle them yet. And so things are sent our way for us here to educate us and prepare us for something special. that, that. Every believer has merits. If you haven't and you're a new Christian, then I'll be honest with you this morning, they're coming, they're coming, and they're going to hurt at times. When we look at a society that is wrecked and ruined, the cross needs to be thrown in the waters in our society. That's the trouble with our society today is because we've gotten away from God and we need to throw the cross in the water. We need for him to do that again. When we see a home breaking up, it needs a cross in that home. When the political corruption that we have in our country is rampant the way it is, and throughout the world, the cross is the answer. Moses did what God said, and he threw the tree in the water, and the water became sweet, the bitter water. Sometimes you have to wait for the sweetness. It's hard to do to wait for the sweetness that's coming. But there is coming. The 23rd Psalm is one of the most perfect examples that there is. We read it in funerals. And I'm not, listen, if it's been in one of your loved ones and read it in their funeral, there's nothing against it. There's nothing wrong with reading it. But it's not really a song for the dying or the dead. David wrote that Psalm at a very, very young age. And he didn't, at a young age that he was, you don't know anything about dying. But he wrote about living. It's a Psalm for living. And I'll just quickly jump to this. There's two things when you're down in that valley in your mirror, and you're down there. There's two things down there, and we don't have the sense sometimes to pick them up. There's a rod and a staff down there. He found those, where did he find them? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod is always, the staff is always the symbol of guidance. When a sheep goes astray, what's the shepherd do? He pulls that sheep back gently. That's why there's a big crook on the end of it. That's what the staff does. It always represents guidance. God is in the valley with us and he'll guide us, but we're too busy trying to figure a way out of the valley on our own. And the other thing is down in the valley is this, there's a rod. The rod is always represents a symbol of authority In the Bible, and we have the authority, the highest authority there is, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. Then you use that name of Jesus Christ and you can cast out demons. You can do anything with that name of Jesus Christ. They're down there for us. You see, there are many frustrations and disappointments and sorrows in life. We all have our maras. But let me tell you this you can leave here today and say, oh no, he wasn't talking to me. I am talking to you. We all have our Maris, and churches do too. You won't bypass them. You won't go over them. You won't go under them. You can't detour around them, and you can't skip over them. It's as simple as that. There's only one way to go through the Maris, and that's with the cross the cross makes the marriage in life sweet that we have so moses says to them then and god said and he said that through moses <clears throat> and he said if you diligently heed the voice of the lord your god and do what is right in his sight give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. This is the first mention in the Bible of the Hebrew name Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, your healer. But you see, there is a sweetness for the Egyptians just like you and I here. You see, you say, well, that was really some miracle that God did. here's, Here's the thing. That's not really the main point of what God did was that. The main miracle is coming up. The sweetness is coming up that they had, did not want to wait on. Here's what the sweetness is. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees so they camped there by the waters. This is significant and symbolic. There are 12 wells of water For each tribe. Each tribe had their own water. And that water was good, sweet water. Seventy palm trees. A shade tree for each elder. Of the 70 elders. Here's where they came. They came to Elam. You know how far Elam was? They had came 60 miles those three days. And on the fourth day is where they were at Marah. Then they went to Elam. If they would have just waited a little bit longer on God, he'd have sustained them through that desert. Elam was only 10 more miles. 10 more miles to wait for the sweetness coming through the problem of the desert and of no water at Marah, that it was bitter. And they didn't want to wait. No matter how bad you think things are now, it's only 10 more miles to Elam. Hang on, hang on, only 10 more miles. You know how far 10 miles is if we go north on I-75? It's right exactly, if you get off the Warner Robbins exit, count your time then, and then when 75 starts to branch in 475 just before you go over the bridge towards US 80 or Eisenhower Parkway, at that bridge is exactly 10 miles. Hang on, it's only 10 more miles. They were doing 20 miles a day. Hang on. It's another couple hours, and you'll be there at Elam. A missionary one time had t- taken his family and sold everything and all his goods and everything. Pastored a very large church and everything because he felt God was calling him to the mission field. And they forsook everything and went to the missions out in the, out in the jungles of Brazil to reach unreached people groups. They were there almost a year, and things were so bad, besides the bugs, the mosquitoes, and all that to put up with. His two children were so downtrodden and everything, they wanted to go back to the States. His wife was ready to leave him and said if he didn't, if he didn't come back that she was going back without him. And everything that he tried was failure after failure after failure during that year in the jungle of trying to reach these unreached people groups. Everything that he touched fell apart. So he wrote a letter and sent it to another missionary on the other side of the world. Now this is days gone by before electronics. He sent a letter to this asking this missionary because of his experience of years in the jungle on that side of the world and in the desert and that side of the world give me some advice. What should I do Should I go back to the States? I'm going to lose my wife. I'm going to lose my kids and everything. What should I do? Give me some advice. You've been here longer than anybody. Tell me what to do. He wrote that letter, mailed it, went back to the jungle. Six weeks later, he makes his trek into the town, into the nearest town. And he had a reply back from the missionary. He got that letter, he began to shake and everything. He could hardly hold the letter in his hand because he knew that it was gonna be the answer to his problems in this letter. This wise missionary was gonna give him the answers now. And he could, he could, hardly, he could hardly rip open that, that envelope, he was shaking so much and everything. And he finally ripped the letter open, pulled that letter out uh, the envelope, pulled that letter out, and he began to read it, just shaking and everything. And then he began to weep uncontrollably. Uncontrollably, he began to weep. And he cried, and he cried, and he cried, and he cried all the way back to his hut in a jungle, saw his wife, and she said, you've got, you got a response. What wise advice did he give us? And he didn't say anything, and he began to cry, and he began to cry, and he went outside, and he let the letter fall down on the ground in their hut his wife went over and picked it up and this is what the letter said it didn't say anything except this there was six words per line three lines and this is what it said go on go on go on second line go on Go on, go on. Third line, go on, go on, go on. Do you feel like you're in your Mara today? I know I've got to be speaking to somebody. Do you know how to get out of your Mara? I'll tell you how to get out. Go on, go on, go on. Don't stay in Mara. Go on because there's sweetness up ahead. It's only 10 miles up, up the road. You can make it. You can do it. I'm here to help you, and I'm here to encourage you if you need it. You can do it. Don't stop at Mara. Go on. Elam is coming. The water is sweet there. The shade is beautiful there. Go on. Pastor, honestly believe, and I've never pastored, okay, Never pastored a church, but I've been around enough of them to know this, that we think we're going to go knock on his door tomorrow morning, well, Tuesday morning, and we just think I'm going to see the pastor because he's going to have the answer about our marital problem. Yeah, sir. He's got it. He's got all the answers. Or our finances are a wreck, but the pastor will have the answer. Chuck, I believe we should have written on our door before you even knock. Go on. Go on. Go on. You can make it. You can make it. You can do it. You've got the Lord Jesus Christ. That's more than, than, than anything in that. Don't stop at Mara. Mara is bitter, but Elam is 10 miles down the road. Don't despair. Don't give up. Go on. Hartley Bridge Road is just up the road. It's just up the road, half a mile past the actual Hartley Bridge Road exit is where your sweetness is, where Elam is. You can make it that far today. Go on, because when you turn a corner, you'll you'll behold a ray of sunlight that you never saw before. It's like coming up out of that valley in the 23rd Psalm, thy faithful servant, as the Lord Jesus wraps his arms around you. That's the greatest hug that you can get. It's not from your pastor. It's not even from me. If he uses me as an instrument, I'll be glad to help you, but I'm going to encourage you to go on. Go on. Bypass Mara. And go on. Paul tells us this. In Philippians 1.12. But I want you to know, brethren... That the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. You see, even in your Mara, God is wanting to use you. People are looking at you and seeing how do you react to problems? How do you react? What do they see? What do they see? So from the text, the following lessons we learn. You have it. You have them in your handout. God is a great healer. He healed the bitter water so that Israel could drink and live. God is also the healer of the body, the soul and spirit of man. And number three, man can wound his fellow man, and he can clean and sow a wound. But true healing comes from Jehovah Rapha. That's what that means. God can use any means to heal, as he did here, calling upon Moses to cast the tree into the water. It's important to note that just as God turned bitter water into sweet water of life for God's people by means of a tree, Christ turned the bitter wages of sin into sweet life by his death for us on a tree. It was so horrible on that tree when he died that his father couldn't look at him. But you know what? There was sweetness coming. There was an Elam coming for Jesus, and that was what? In three days, he overcame death. You see, he was educating even his own son. There's a sweetness coming, son. I know you're suffering. I know what you're going through. But hold on. I'm still in control. God cast this tree to cross into the midst of a bitter world, giving life and joy to all who receive Christ as their personal Savior by faith. And this particular episode should teach us not to complain so quickly. Wrong audience, isn't it? I'm talking the wrong audience. I know that. But we've got to cover it. As did the children of Israel. We are to trust God who will turn our bitter trials to sweetness by means of a tree the cross. He is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals you. Now, there's a number six. You need to write this one down. It was purposely left off. Purposely left off. Because who typed this up? I told him. I didn't tell him. There's a number six. You have the greatest way to right now to tell God, God, change me. Change me. Aren't we the guys that we when we're in an office and we're the only Christian and they tell them dirty stories and them filthy jokes? I mean men and women, and you know, they, they're leading the nightlife like it's crazy and everything, come to work, they're half, you know, like they're just coming in, like I joked about at the beginning. And we the first words out of our mouth is, what do we say? We go to God at night and we say, Remove me from that evilness, God. Take me away. Take me away. Come on now. We're being honest still, aren't we? We want out when maybe God planted you there on purpose so you could be the light to the darkness instead of getting out. There's a sweetness that's, if you'll you'll listen to God, there's a sweetness. January number six is this. January 9th is 21 days of prayer and fasting here at this church. Not a lot of churches doing it. We're doing it at our church. 9 through 21st is the dates. Saturday, just write this down, Saturday 14, 21, and 28. At 9 o'clock in the morning, right here, is prayer time collectively for anybody that wants to come, and I would hope that we would fill it out. One hour. Last, last year, we never, ran, we never ran late here. It's just time to pray and that. There's a book out there uh, on a one counter, Basic Steps to Fasting and Prayer. how A how-to guide for preparing, participating, and completing your fast. There's very good info here, very good info. Chuck put this together, and uh, it's very good info. So we're, we're starting it. If you want to tell God that you mean business this morning and you want to deal with the maras in your life, then Start that fast. There's different types. There's different types of fast you can do. I'm going to take this one step further, okay? I want you to pray and fast about something else here, is this. If you never did this before, then you should try this during this fast time. If you don't tithe, then I would encourage you during this time of fasting to pray about it and ask God, to teach you to tithe, okay? I'm serious about this. I think it's that important. God doesn't need our money, that's for sure. But God looks for our obedience. And here I'm going to take it this, because I've done this before. I'm going to ask you to take it beyond. I want you to do this. If you start tithing during the fast, after the fast is over, I'm asking you from the time you start, of the 21 days, I'm asking you to try tithing for 90 days, three months, three months. If God doesn't bless you in those three months and show you his raw, awesome power that he has, then I want you to do this. I want you to find me, call the office. They'll, call, they'll, they'll give you my cell number, and you call me. I would rather you tell me in person to my face that, look, pal, it didn't work. And I will promise you this. If I ever get a chance to speak in this church again, and you're in the audience, if I ever speak on tithing, you can get up and then leave. And you won't offend me at all. But you see, that's a pretty bold promise that I'm making to you. Because I got, I got this. That promise comes from God. Try me. Test me. I'm asking you to try and test God. Now, There's this, and then I'm done. There's this. Well, do I tithe off the gross or off the net? I can't answer that for you because the Bible doesn't tell us. It says a tithe. It's up to what do you think. Let me tell you what a guy taught me one time. He was working on a construction site. I was a brand-new Christian, had been reading about tithe the night before, studying Maggie and I. So I went down. He came down off the roof, put the tailgate down on his truck, and we sat there, and I says you know is it the net or is it the gross i hear different conflicting stories even at church and he said let me tell you this let's say you make 500 dollars this week taxes take out 100 you get 400 take home i said yeah now i'm going to ask you a question i said okay ask the question how much money did you make this week i made 500 dollars right. He got down off the truck, put the tailgate up. And that answered my question about, is it the gross or is it the net? Now you say, well, am I going to die and go to hell if, I, if I'm doing a net? No, you're not. You're a born again believer. You got Jesus in your heart. You're on your way to heaven. But that's between you and God. That's between you and God. I know what's right for Maggie and I. I know what's right for us. So, if you're here this morning and you know not Jesus and the pardon and forgiveness of sins, after the service is over, I'm going to be down front here for a minute. Chuck will be around. There's some others that are around here. If you want to know more about Christ, then just approach one of us. Don't, don't leave here without, without finding out some answers to some questions you have. Maybe you're going through a mirror right now. And you want to talk about it. I'm fine. I'll listen to it. If God uses, uses me an instrument, I'll help you out any way I can. But he's the one that you really need to talk to. Then come see me. Get down on your knees. Put some calluses on those knees. Maybe you've got a den. Maybe next to your bed. Whatever the case may be. You know what? Even though the Israelites saw this miracle of reaching Elam, they still didn't learn. They still didn't learn. They still complained along the way. But we have them as an example in our life. We don't have to go through that. God wants us to be obedient to him, to come to know him as close as we can in this lifetime before we go to McCullough's. Okay? And you can. I'm telling you, there is a promised land for each and every one of us It's different, but we can make it. We'll never achieve getting, because that would be the perfect life, but we can come to know him as close as we can in this lifetime. Thank you so much.